see everybody. My name is Matt. I want to welcome you as well. <clears throat> we are moving right along in our Advent series. If you'll remember at the start of Advent several weeks ago, Lisa walked us through the passage where the angel tells Joseph that Mary's going to be pregnant and give birth to the Messiah. And then Matthew, writing this, kind of gives a little uh, kind of parenthetical thing to explain from like a big story standpoint, the significance of what is happening. And it says this in Matthew 1, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, that's Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew highlights this ancient prophecy and then wants to make sure that we understand that that means God with us. Now, the, I think the interesting thing for me about this is that, of course, for centuries, Jewish religious leaders and scholars, of course, they had known about this prophecy from Isaiah, it turns out, Isaiah chapter 7. But here's the thing. Almost no one thought that that should be taken literally. In other words, they believed that it was um, predicting the coming of some great leader who would... God would somehow be present in and through this person, but figuratively, right? Not literally. And Matthew is claiming that this ancient promise is being fulfilled in a way that's greater than anyone could have imagined. That's literally happening. God among us. Now, Matthew, who's writing this, he's Jewish. He's writing primarily to a Jewish audience, to people who know the Hebrew scriptures really well which makes this whole thing even more shocking. I want you to keep in mind that, that the Jews, sort of their distinctive view of God, pretty much made them the last people on earth who would be open to the idea of a human being becoming God or being God. And so you look around the world at this time, you have Eastern religions. They, of course, believe God is like this impersonal force kind of permeating everything. Think the force in Star Wars. So not a huge stretch that maybe there would come along a person who was the embodiment maybe or the manifestation of the divine in a special way. That makes sense. Western religion at the time essentially believed in multiple non-omnipotent, not all-powerful deities who would sometimes disguise themselves as humans and show up and play tricks and mess with us. And, and so it's not a stretch in Greco-Roman religion for Zeus or for Hermes to come down and, in human form. In fact, in Acts, there's a group of people in the Greco-Roman culture who think that Paul and Barnabas are, in fact, Zeus and Hermes in human form. And Paul has to say, hold up, hold up. <laughs> Let's get some things clear. The Jews, however, believed in a God who was infinite, who was not a being within the universe, but someone, a being who was transcendent beyond all time and space. And so for them, everything in the Hebrew worldview went against the idea that a human could be God. In other words, no one was waiting for this in a first century Jewish culture. No one was waiting for this to happen. And yet, Jesus, by his life, his claims, his resurrection, he convinced his closest 
Jewish followers that he wasn't just a prophet who'd come to tell them how to find God, but God himself come to find us. This is why the gospel writer John begins his gospel the way he does in John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, talking about Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He's talking about Jesus, the Word, uh, the source, the creator of the cosmos. And then a few verses later, he says this, that same person, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. New Testament scholar and Bible commentator William Barclay says, this is perhaps the greatest single verse in the entire New Testament. Eugene Peterson, in his message translation, he puts it this way. Maybe you've heard this. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Isn't that great? Word became flesh and blood, moved into the neighborhood. Philip Yancey summarizes it like this. God, who knows no before or after, entered time and space. God, who knows no boundaries, took on the shocking confines of a baby's skin, the ominous restraints of mortality. But the few eyewitnesses on Christmas night saw none of that. They saw an infant struggling to work never before used lungs. Could it be true, this Bethlehem story of a creator descending to be born on one small planet? I don't know what you picture when you think of God. I don't know what words or emotions or imagery comes to mind for you. Maybe you think of God as like a, a really strict judge or like a stern parent. Maybe you picture God, that being in the sky who's watching everything that you do, taking notes, just waiting for you to mess up. Um, maybe you have this sneaking suspicion that when God looks at you, his primary re response, his primary emotion is disappointment. Like, come on, really? Or maybe for you it's not that. You think of God and you just think of a distant, remote, disinterested, uninvolved being. I imagine that we all have a different kind of picture in our minds of, of who God is and what he's like. I don't know what it is for you. But I do know this. Your picture of God, what you think about when you think about God, determines everything about how you relate to him, your posture toward him, how you actually approach this God, what you bring, it, all the way down to your desire to even be with him in the first place, to spend time with him, to bring him your real self, to move toward, to move toward God. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus, himself God, is the, look at this phrase, exact representation of his being, of who God is, of what God is like. Jesus is God's self-revelation to the world. 
And so because of this, Christmas changes a lot about how we understand God. And so my question this morning is, what things does Jesus make more clear about who God is? How does what Jesus reveals, how does that actually change maybe that mental picture of of who we think God is? And therefore, how we feel about God and how we respond, even our desire to be with God uh, or to move toward him in the first place. So I want to give us a couple of things. Um, One thing that we would never fully grasp about God until Jesus, until Christmas, is the, the fact, the truth that God is really surprisingly humble. Everyone knows God is great. You don't actually have to be, we don't have to be taught that. But a God who makes himself lowly, unassuming, small, that is not a conclusion that you come to on your own without what we see in Jesus. That's not a conclusion that you come to when you look out at uh, the stars or the Andromeda galaxy or whatever it is. Um, God did not come to earth in a raging whirlwind. He didn't show up with some omnipotent display of power and glory. The birth of Jesus takes place instead in some podunk village in a remote province of Judea. Um, I know in our minds, because of Christmas carols and the nostalgia and the cards and all that, we think of Bethlehem as being this kind of magical, quaint little place. And I just want to say, not if you live there, not if that's your home, right, that Bethlehem is someone else's Daleville. (laughs) And that's kind of weird, isn't it? Yeah. God, what were you thinking? Uh, Really humble. Did you know this, that prior to Jesus, almost no other, no author used the word humble as a compliment? And that seems strange to us, but prior to Jesus, that was not, humility was not a virtue to ascribe to or to aspire to. You don't have any TED Talks in the first century about the health benefits of humility. You don't have anybody's, any company's corporate values, including humility. It, it didn't exist. We had to be taught that. We had to be shown that. And it's what we see in God at Christmas. Just to show you what I mean, I mean, it's, it's actually all right here in Luke 2. In his account, he says, in those days... Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And so right away, Luke, to contrast Jesus with Caesar, he, he, he re- reminds them and us of who, the, who was ruling the Roman world and the, basically the known world at the time, the uncontested ruler. And that, that word Augustus is actually not his last name. It's a title. His actual birth name was Octavius, but he changed it later on, and Augustus in Latin means the revered one. There's actually a document from the first century called the Res Gestae Divi Augusti, and it stands for the Deeds of the Divine Augustus, and it lists 35 key areas of the Divine Augustus's accomplishments. Just topic by topic, military victories, building projects, special campaigns, public awards, and so on. 
and I almost forgot to tell you, Augustus wrote this about himself, <laughs> okay? Because that's just what, that's how they thought of greatness. And then he had copies distributed all around the known empire. And I just want to give you a sample just to get kind of a sense of what we're talking about here. Number one, he writes, at the age of 19, on my own responsibility and at my own expense, I raised an army. I don't know what you were doing at 19, but with which I successfully championed the liberty of the republic when it was oppressed by the tyranny of a faction. Number 10, my name was inserted in the hymn of the Sali by a decree of the Senate, and it was enacted by law that my person should be inviolable forever. Number 34, in my sixth and seventh consulships, after I had extinguished civil wars and at, time, at a time when, with universal consent, I was in complete control of affairs, I transferred the Republic from my power to the dominion of the Senate and the people of Rome. For this service of mine, I was named Augustus by decree of the Senate, and the doorposts of my house were publicly wreathed with bay leaves, and a civic crown was fixed over my door on account of my courage, clemency, justice, and piety. After this time, I excelled in all influence. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty humble guy, right? Let me just list let me just list some of my accomplishments, some of what uh, my success. This is how the world thought about greatness. It's how the average everyday person thought about power. Yet, when the creator, the word, when the one by whom and for whom all things were created, you want to talk about real power. When God chooses to enter his creation, he comes humbly. As Philip Yancey again says, the God who roared, who could order armies and empires about like pawns on a chessboard. This God emerged in Palestine as a baby who could not speak or eat solid food or control his bladder, who depended on a teenager for shelter, food, and love. The events of that first Christmas point inescapably to what surely is, or was, an oxymoron, a humble God. God who lowers himself on purpose, voluntarily, to do something on our behalf. And so we see in Jesus, God is actually surprisingly humble. Paul says in Philippians 2 that this God who knows no before and no after made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, humbling himself to the point of even death on a cross. As I said, your picture of God, who you think God is, what you think God is like, will shape your relationship, your desire to be near this God, and the way that you engage, the way that you pray. So that's one thing God's humble, um, but that's just the beginning of what the incarnation reveals about who God is. Matthew, different gospel writer, begins his account of Jesus' birth, I think in a really strange way. Matthew 1, uh, starting in verse 1, he says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Is anybody asleep yet? 
Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. That's just the first three verses. He goes on and on and on with these names and eventually lands on, I guess was the point, Jesus at the end. And I just want to say, Matthew, and I want to say, Matt, you're, you're losing us. You're losing us in the introduction. There is not an editor alive who would let someone publish a book and, and this be the opening the opening lines. Actually, though, it turns out this is a masterful introduction. We don't think of genealogies. We don't, they don't mean a lot to us. Um, but 2,000 years ago, people treated genealogies basically like we treat our LinkedIn page, uh, meaning they were selectively honest, meaning... <laughs> Meaning you leave out a few not-so-great details from your employment history. They leave out their uncle, great-uncle so-and-so who got locked away for life for trying to start a political revolt. Jesus' family tree uh, is, is jaw-dropping. Jaw There's Gentiles mentioned. There are uh, women, sinners. You think about those categories. Uh, Gentiles were considered unclean. They couldn't go in the temple for fear that they would defile it. If a Jew came in contact with a Gentile, they had to go through ceremonial uh, cleansing, washing. They were basically regarded on the same level in the first century as dogs. Uh, women, and there's tons of, or there's several Gentiles mentioned. Women are also mentioned, which I know to us it's like, of course, because they birth literally everyone. But that's not how they saw this. In the first century, women were treated like second-class citizens. Um, in fact, only the patriarchs would have been included in genealogies. And then there are sinners. There are people who do really embarrassing, shameful things like, like moral disasters. Uh, he mentions here uh, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. That might not mean a lot to you and me today, but for sure the Jews reading this in the first century know all about that story. How Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute in order to secretly sleep with Judah, her father-in-law, which then resulted in the birth of these twins. Okay. Okay, that's part of the story. Uh, Rahab, Matthew mentions, was a Canaanite prostitute. She trusts God and ends up um, written into the genealogy of Jesus. You have Ruth, another outsider who God chooses to include in his story. Uh, you have Bathsheba, only it doesn't say that. It says David and Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. In other words, um, it includes David's worst moment. It includes his adultery, and if you think about the fact that he was king, and she probably didn't have probably not a choice, it was perhaps much worse than that. And then to cover that up, uh, he has Bathsheba's husband murdered. Matthew highlights the darkest spot in the life of their greatest hero. He purposefully, purposefully creates all of this scandal. He intentionally makes us question some of the people in Jesus' family line, in his genealogy. My question is why? 
Why pause and make this as shady as possible? Why point out the mistakes? Why include these questionable figures in Jesus' family line? And again, when, when they're reading this in the first century, they know these stories. They cringe. They know the connotations. Because Matthew wanted them to know that Jesus did not just come for sinners or for the broken. Jesus, Matthew wanted the world to know, actually came from sinners. And that was okay because that was actually the point. And so Matthew decides to tell this story, and look how he begins. He says, before we get to the Jesus part or we get into the New Testament, I just want to remind you how it's always been, that God, throughout history, has chosen broken, kind of messed up people, people with a past, people with secrets, people with a list of disappointments that they've experienced or wreckage that they've caused in the lives of others. Those are the ones he's chosen. And so Matthew knew to include these characters, it wasn't an exception. It wasn't like an anomaly in the story. It was the point. And so I got to imagine Matthew kind of smiled and was like, oh, I got to write about Judah and Tamar. Ooh, I need to mention Rahab, the sex worker. Oh, yeah, and, and David and Solomon, whose mother was, and I won't even say her name. I'll just imply and create all this tension, and all the Jewish people go, oh. because this is the point of the story I'm about to tell. Judah, by the way, became the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus, the Messiah. Rahab becomes the great, 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 however many greats, grandmother of Jesus, which again is the point. I think Matthew understood, maybe better than any of the other gospel writers, that the story of Jesus and the story specifically of Christmas is a story about God in humility drawing near to those who thought, what chance do I have? It's a story about God leaning into people who had kind of leaned away or been taught to stay away or whatever. And I think part of the reason Matthew does this is because he knows his own story. He was a tax collector. He was one of the people that had their own categories at the bottom. He was an embarrassment to his family. He was a traitor. He couldn't participate in social or community life. And I just suspect that Matthew hadn't forgotten that day that Jesus said to him while he's standing by his tax collector's booth, it is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick, for I've not come to call the righteous but sinners. Or maybe Matthew reflected on a day like this when Jesus shows up and he overheard James and John and Peter and Andrew and all the good Jewish young men saying, Jesus, we're not going to go to Matthew's house. You just... For dinner, are we? Yep, we're going. And maybe he thought, oh, yeah, and then after that, after that, they were like, great. What are we going to do next? Make him one of our disciples? It was his story. It's what Jesus had done for him. He knew it was the point of the story. And so we learn from the incarnation, from Jesus, that God is incredibly gracious. Jesus says, I have not come to whitewash your worst moments. I've come to graciously redeem you, your past, 
the things that you're deeply ashamed of, the parts of your story you wish you could make go away. God extends his love and his grace to us while we were still sinners, before we made any promises, before we showed any hints of reform or change. He meets us where we are. This is good news for the broken, the spiritually poor, the washed up, the hopeless. But wait, there's more. Uh, We now know because of the incarnation, not only is God humble, God is gracious, but we know in a whole new way that God is personal, meaning he's approachable. If you look back in history, we have always kind of approached the deity, whatever they are, with fear and trembling. That there's this sense that if I approach God wrongly, if I don't have all the details buttoned up and the right words and the right preparations and the right rituals, if I don't bow down low enough, I kind of got this sense that things might not end well for me. And yet, look what John writes. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory. That the glory of God becomes visible, knowable, accessible. You realize for 13 verses, John has gone on and on, and he's used all of this poetic language to try to capture the fact that God, who is big enough to create this cosmic expanse, That Jesus is the word, he's the source, he's the architect behind the universe. And then he gets to verse 14, he says, that person, that God became flesh and blood. God becomes a person. And it's interesting, from this point on, John drops all the poetic language. He drops all of the kind of metaphors and all that. And from this point on, he just calls him Jesus. It's a person. And to us, maybe that might not seem like a big deal, but if you look at the Old Testament, anytime someone gets anywhere close to God or God's glory, it was apparently terrifying. Remember that devout Jews um, at the time of Jesus, and actually like now, wouldn't even say or write out Yahweh, the, the full name of God, out of reverence, out of fear for God. We know that when Moses asked to see the face of God, that he was told that it would kill him. That at best, he could only see God's back uh, as God was passing by. Can you imagine if Moses were here today and he were to hear the story of the first Christmas, the message of Christmas, or he were to read what John wrote? We have seen his glory. I mean, I imagine Moses saying, do you realize what this means? This is the very thing that that I was denied. This means that through Jesus, you can meet God. You can know him personally, without fear, without terror. He can come into your life. A few verses later, John writes, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him what? Known. In the ancient world, um, the gods, and there were lots of them, there was like a pantheon, a god for everything, 
In the ancient world, um, the gods were often very slow to tell people their name. They didn't want people to know their name. Um, in fact, in Acts 17, there's that time when Paul's in Athens and he comes across this altar and there's no name. It just says, altar to an unknown God. We don't know their name. Um, the gods didn't want people to know their names. Do you know why? Because they believed if you knew a God's name, it was said that you had intimacy with that God, that at some level you could kind of get their attention or, or have some claim on them. And so oftentimes the gods in these mythologies and so on would give people secondary names or a pseudonym. They'd sidestep who they really were or their true identity. Because again, the, the second you know their name, you're, that implies closeness. And again, maybe they have to give you your, their attention. When Jesus went to die on the cross, John 17, 18, and 19, when he's preparing he's to die, he, he prays to the Father, and he prays for oneness. He prays that, that the world would know, would know him. But then in verse 17, or chapter 17, verse 6, he says, Father, I have revealed you, except for in your Bible, there's a little footnote, and it says that in Greek, what it actually says is, I have revealed your name. Listen, in an ancient world where the gods were never fully straightforward, they were ambiguous, they were elusive, mysterious, they were unknown gods, all of a sudden we have a God who comes to us and refuses to remain unknown. He comes to us and he gives us his name. He reveals himself fully in Jesus. This is why John, the apostle, near the end of his life, reflecting on all of this, this is why he writes this. And just notice the words that he uses to describe this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Any guesses on who the word of life is at this point? Jesus. Look at this. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you, may also, you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He's the Word. He's life itself. He's eternal life. And his name is Jesus. We, we know his name. He appeared to us. And here's kind of the idea. And again, this is unbelievably intimate language. For those of you who have kids who are younger or you remember when your kids were little, I am guessing there was a time, if you're like me, when your kids were small and they were saying something to you and you really weren't paying any attention at all. And you're on your phone or distracted, and you're like, uh-huh, mm, neat, uh-huh, yeah. And you're just pretending to listen, but you're really not. I am sure that both of my kids did this at some point. While they were talking, and I was going, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, and I'm doing something else. While they were talking, and I wasn't listening, there were for sure times when each, they each did this. They would reach up, both of their hands, put their hands on my face, and do what? Turn my face 
toward them. Because they knew if I was looking at them, they knew that they had my full attention, my full focus, my love. John is saying that, that in Jesus, God himself has been revealed. He's appeared. That he's, he's God with our hands on his face, turning him toward us to look at us. And he looked at us, and he saw us, and we looked at him. We saw his face, that God allowed himself to be seen, to be heard, to be touched. God is more personal and approachable than we could possibly imagine. Again, your picture of God, what you think when you think God, what you think God is like and, and the, the imagery and the emotions that that stirs up, it has everything to do with how we actually then relate to this God, with our posture toward him, with our desire to do things like pray or listen or spend time with him. I don't know how you view God. I don't know how you relate to God or how you pray. Uh, there are probably folks here who you may still kind of barter with God. Like, okay, God, I did this. Okay, fine. I'll watch church online <laughs> this week to kind of smooth things over. Or, okay, God, I know I made a huge mistake, or if you want me to say it your way, I sinned big time. And, God, I know that you're disappointed, and so first thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a cool down period. <laughs> and when the, when the dust is settled and it's safe for me to come back, right, then I promise you I'll make it up to you. If you're still bartering with God, it, it, that's transactional, and that is not at all what Christmas is about. You've actually been invited to something far better. God's saying, we're, we're done with that. You don't have to come to me that way. You, you don't have to view me through the lens of what you have or haven't done. I'm your father, which means you're my son, my daughter. You're my child. That is the foundation of, of our relationship. When God showed up in Jesus, he was not a pillar of fire. He wasn't a, an earthquake. He wasn't a tornado, but a baby. Think about that. And this time he came not to bring judgment, but to bear it, to pay the penalty for our sins, to take away the barrier between humanity and God. The incarnation doesn't happen just to convince us or to show us that God exists. It happened to bring him near so that we could be with him and, and he us. John, again, in the middle of all this, gives kind of a summary statement for what this means and the invitation this is to each one of us. John 1 verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Why? Because nobody thought to look for a God who was like this. We didn't know. And so many people didn't recognize him. 
He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And here's his point in verse 12. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John is saying, I want you to think very hard about how you relate to God, about your picture of what you think this God is like. He says, you no longer have to relate to God as a cosmic, disinterested, distant, remote being. You no longer have to come to God and relate to him as like a judge or like a strict parent or rule keeper. You no longer have to come to God through the lens of what you have or haven't done. You may now relate to him as you are, his child. Whatever you thought about God, whatever your assumptions have been up until this point, as the angel tells the shepherds in the field at the birth of Jesus, the angel says, this is good news of great joy for all the people. Why? Because God has decided to do something on behalf of us, and it has nothing to do with anyone's effort or behavior. The angel goes on and says, the good news is that there's peace that God's favor actually rests on you. And do you know what the proof of that is? Jesus, a God who is humble, a God who is gracious, a God who is deeply, deeply personal. That Jesus came to remove your sin, your mistakes, your past, your shame, your brokenness, so that you can have peace. And don't you start... Don't you start telling me about how bad you are. You know why? Because then I'm going to have to go into the whole thing about Rahab, and I'll tell you the whole, the whole sordid story in slow motion. Then I got to bring up Tamar. Then I got to bring up Judah. And after that, talk about Matthew. And there's a bunch of people we skipped, okay? We don't have time. Jesus moved heaven and earth to be near to us. In him, the unapproachable God becomes human someone who can be known and loved. Through, through faith, we can become his children. We can know his love. I know a lot of us know that up here, but do we know it here? If that ever moved from like a theological interesting idea to like an emotional reality, what this means, it would change the way that you pray. It would change the way that we respond to temptation. It would change how we saw ourselves and our sense of worth, even when people say things that are, that are terrible to us or whatever. It would change how we view people around us. I imagine many of us in this room have said yes to this invitation, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Many of us have said yes. Perhaps there are those of us in the room right now who have yet to say yes. Um, maybe you're here today and you'd say, you know what? I want that, but when I come to God, all I can think about is my failure. When I come to God, all I can think about is my past and my inconsistency, and all of my prayers start with basically, hey, God, it's me again, with what a bad person I am. And I'd like to put that away once and for all. And at Christmas, 
You can. He has done, he's already done the hard work. It's, it's actually not an issue. It's already settled. It's sometimes an issue with us. And so I just wanted this morning close by leading us. It's, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to say yes. Again, some of us did this as kids or as teenagers. Others of us maybe never have. By the way, it probably is good to reaffirm this from time to time, even if that was you as a kid or a teenager, because if we're not careful, we forget. We forget what's on offer and the peace that Jesus makes available to us. So I want to invite you to stand, and we're just going to close very simply with this prayer. When you say yes to him, you place your faith in him, you become children of God. That's how he fundamentally views you and treats you. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say a phrase, and I invite anyone who would like to, to repeat just phrase by phrase this prayer from your heart, um, and I'd like you to say it out loud. So let's pray together, and then we'll be done. Pray this with me after me, please. Heavenly Father, I believe your grace is more powerful than my mistakes. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sin once and for all. I will no longer come to you or avoid you on the basis of what I have or haven't done. Instead, I'll come boldly because of what you've done for me. Through Christ Jesus, my Savior, and my peace. Amen.